Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is episode 86, My Dixie Wrecked. <laughs> so, um, this is an episode we just wanted to kind of talk about. Um, there's a lot happening nowadays, like in the media and just kind of in popular opinion um, in the United States that is at, at face value trying to address uh, inequality, uh, social injustice, racism, but it seems like certain things are getting thrown under the bus, um, including Southern heritage, Southern culture. And uh, as two people who have learned to love the South and uh, live in the South most of the time, um, I kind of wanted to make an episode that's uh, partly in defense of the South in certain areas and uh, just kind of starting a conversation maybe from another point of view that doesn't get talked about enough uh, nowadays. So that's kind of where we're coming from with this episode, uh, talking about Dixie. So let's start with Dixie, that word itself, and uh, the little song I just played on my harmonica, Dixieland. Um, that's enough in some some circles to uh, get this episode canceled alone to play Dixieland. <laughs> so I feel like we could almost start anywhere when it comes to Southern culture and uh, start addressing some of these things that come up. So, Teresa, can I hand this over to you? Because you did a lot of research on the word Dixie and uh, maybe any uh, thing that you've learned that you thought was interesting you could share about the song, about where uh, the word Dixie came from. Like, what's the reality of this? Yeah, I I mean, I did as much research as I really wanted to. But the the idea of Dixie is different to to different people. Um, I think for... Our ease, uh, we'll probably just refer to Dixie like anything below the Mason-Dixon line, but arguably um, some people have said that Dixie is like they've done studies to see what businesses use the word Dixie in their name. And by the way, when are we going to cancel Dixie cups and Dixie plates and stuff like that? That's probably on the horizon because um, it's racist. I think we've already canceled the word dick. I don't hear that gets used <laughs> enough. It's always cock or penis now. Ugh. And uh, and so, like the Mason-Dixon line, it was named after the, the two guys. Um, and I think the guy's name was Jeremiah Dixon. And, and there isn't a 100% consensus as to why it's called Dixie. Um, some people have pointed out that in Louisiana or um, areas, yeah, basically Louisiana, that had like a French um, culture, they had... $10 notes way back when, and they, I think I am stupid, but, um, like the, the number 10 was pronounced something like Deeks or something like that. So maybe that's why it's called Dixie, but I think more so the Mason Dixon line. And, uh, this guy, you know, like I said, Jeremiah Dixon, maybe they just decided to say, Oh, you know, the Mason Dixon line and everybody under it or is considered Dixie. Um, the song, uh, Racist. 
Yeah, I used to hear that from people's horns, remember? Yeah, my first, uh, like, introduction to that song was the horn on the General Lee car in Dukes of Hazzards. <laughs> right before, like, they jumped over the pond and, and the sheriff, jumped, like, landed in the pond. And we're in a public park sitting on bleachers, and I'm, like, looking over my shoulders, making sure no one's going to... Did you, know. you ever watch Dukes of Hazzard? Some, yeah. I think I was, I was... I mean, I know I'm younger than you, so I probably didn't really appreciate what I, was going on. I always blame a lot of the bad driving I see in the South as too many people watching Dukes of Hazard growing up. <laughs> and, uh, man, I used to love, like, that old hound dog, Flash. And, like, the you remember the deputy that would mm-hmm. ride around with old Flash? Good, good, good. Yeah. There was somebody driving mudding in the park uh, last night and this morning, got themselves good and stuck. Yeah. <laughs> they they might have been trying to do some Dukes of Hazard stuff. But, yeah, so the song, um, even that is, there's a debate as to who wrote it. There's this one guy, I think his name was Dan Emmett or something like that. And he's from Ohio um, and wrote it as a song supposedly for um, minstrel groups who would do blackface and uh, more on that in just a minute. But there's also a family of people that uh, I think it's the Snowden family. And I, I, again, I can't remember all these details off the top of my head, but I think they were from like maybe Kentucky or Ohio. But that Dan Emmett guy, they said that he took the song from them. And that family is black. So I'm just like, yeah, I don't exactly know. Maybe he like changed the words to it or there was a certain sentiment that we don't know like the original um, reason why that song was was being sung and being played. Yeah, one of the things I get from uh, the research you shared with me about the, the word Dixie and the song is uh, it just brings it back. So many of these topics we want to talk about come back to interpretation. You know, for me, it's really interesting, like the different time periods. These words hit people's ears differently. Like at a certain time period, you talk about Dixie, you play Dixieland. Whether you're white or black, you may feel kind of a, uh, a what would I say, uh, uh, nostalgia for the South, you know, remembering that warm sun you grew up in and the, the feeling of pine straw under your feet. Um, and so much is getting interpreted differently. And it's not that it's completely untrue. Like Dixieland has been used, you know, in, in relation with the Confederate flag and a very racist version of the South, but it's also used in um, other ways, just people kind of liking the South, you know, like it evokes uh, different memories for me, for instance. And that's part of what I object to is how things are getting lumped together. Mm-hmm. They're getting oversimplified. Um, as they say, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And, you know, going back to that song, um, it's been interpreted that, and I don't, I mean, I'm not a scholar on this shit. So it's been interpreted that the song, which was given to groups of white people, mostly white people. There were some black people, believe it or not, that did blackface. I'm not kidding. Um, How the hell did that work? Because, well, more, okay, I'll tell you. So the black people um, would join a minstrel group. And really, I I didn't see too many uh, examples of this, but they would put on, I guess, more uh, makeup to put on their Already oh, kind of like face. a white man playing a clown puts on white. Makeup, I guess so. Just like emphasis, sort yeah, of. Yeah, and but the difference was that in the minstrel group that was often, you know, all white, and again, more on that in just a minute. Um, the the black guy, like you know, the token black guy, he would 
be passed off as a white man in blackface. He just happened to be a lot better at dancing. What? So yeah. they were taking a black guy mm-hmm. to play a white man playing a black guy. And the audience, this was like hidden from the audience. So the audience was not aware this was a black man. Is that Supposedly, supposedly. Whoa. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, the best guy to play a black guy, but we don't want to admit we're hiring a black actor kind of thing. Yeah. And wow. then eventually, and again, not sure of the timeline here, but there were blackface or there was at least one blackface group, according to Wikipedia, that um, was all black and they actually performed in parts of the South. However... The majority of these minstrel groups, as far as my, you know, little bit of research um, goes, they were white men who were from the northeast of the United States, whether that was New York, especially New York City, Pennsylvania. New York City. Yeah, Pennsylvania. And some uh, actors, uh, blackface in the minstrel group, were actually from London. And they performed first for the super rich um, in places in New York City and the Northeast, and um, and then eventually branched out to the lower classes of um, poorer whites, and they would play in like the Five Points area, New York City, the Bowery, and other places. Um, and according to one article I read, uh, the poor whites were actually getting kind of like they felt a camaraderie. Um, with the plight of the black man as, as it was being portrayed in the show. Yeah, what I've uncovered in uh, research in other areas about, like, a lot of the laws that divided white people from black people, I forget, there was kind of a, a word for that, that that preceded the Civil War for these types of laws. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like, white people and black people, it, it was all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, they, they couldn't be sitting together. Obviously, they couldn't get married, stuff like that. And at first, you hear those, and we only get taught like a half of history. So if you just hear that alone, well, obvious racism. That's what it's about. Black people don't like white people. White people didn't want, you know, these other white people like being uh, tainted by the company of blacks, you might say. But then like, you know, reading Howard Zinn, and I love bringing up Howard Zinn in this context because the left often uses Howard Zinn in his books as sort of their champion. And sometimes I read Howard's in books and I'm like, are you guys actually reading his books? Because one of the things I got from that is that was not really about, I mean, reading his books was a lot of this was not about um, face value racism. It was because there um, were these times in history, like after the Revolutionary War, maybe a few times before the Revolutionary War, where poor whites and enslaved blacks and sometimes enslaved whites and poor blacks, you know, there was a lot more... uh, um, what am I trying to say? A lot more. It wasn't a, a black and white line, so to speak. Interplay? Interplay will work. You know, you'll see, like, in history, you find white slaves. You find black slave owners. Um, it was a lot more complicated and peppered than um, either side will try to portray, you know, whether you're a, a traditional conservative or a modern liberal. You know, either side seems to really skew history to present a fiction um, for an agenda. It, it seems to me the way I read history. And so you find poor whites and poor blacks allying, realizing they have a common cause and starting a revolt. And um, these laws to keep white people and black people separated were a tactic we still see used today, divide and conquer. 
So if white people and black people can't even hang out, you've just divided the forces that might rise up against you if you're a rich, powerful person oppressing both groups in half just by that alone. So that was pretty interesting that I found that's, uh, again, one of these parts of uh, what gets thrown in with Southern culture especially that isn't quite what it seems. There's a deeper historical truth going on there. Yeah, and what I was saying about these um, blackface shows, I don't like I didn't mean for this to be a huge segment on it, but um but just one more thing to add to what you were saying. So, at first, like I said, uh, it was being noticed that the the poorer audiences of poor whites up in the northeast were starting to sympathize with the characters that were being um, put down, you know, as they were playing slaves on a plantation. But then it was spun, and don't ask me how, but it was spun um, so that the white bosses of many industries, many companies in the north, we're talking about the north, um, they were like, well, yeah, you know, aren't you glad you ain't black? Like, look at that. And so it united and this is the the fuckering of it, they united the white bosses with their white underlings, poor whites, um, to be more of a race war instead of a class war. Wait a minute, I'm not sure I understand that. So the powers that be, you might say, like the, the wealthy whites, spun the narrative to be more like, Wow, like, you know, however bad you've got it, at least you ain't one of them. And pointing at the black minstrels and that. How did that unite the poor whites with the rich whites? Because when the white people were playing in blackface, they were also, you know, playing a stereotypical, like, um, stupid, you know, backwards character. And so it was undesirable to identify with that. Oh, I see. So you'd be watching it and think like, man, that guy's like stupid or mean or just something you don't want to be. And like that makes you feel a little more like, oh, we're in the white club. Yeah. And we're not like that. Yeah. And, Ah. you know, again, these shows, it just it really struck me as odd. Like here is the Northeast and we're including Boston and even um, John Tyler, President John Tyler had a blackface group come to the White House when he was president to perform. And this is just, you know, a lot of upper class at first, um, northerners that um, I think there was slavery in New York State, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, there was slavery slavery all over the place. So it was not just um, the Mason-Dixon line or anything like that that was uh, separating, like, the good, pure people from the evil slave owners in the South. Yeah, well— I wanted to ask, like, you see, somebody once told me that uh, a Yankee is somebody who lives up north. A damn Yankee is somebody who comes down here and stays. Mm-hmm. So Teresa like and I, yeah, Teresa and I are both damn Yankees. Um, and Teresa, I wonder if you'd share a little bit of, like, when you came down to the south and what that was like for you. Um, what was your introduction to the south? Because Teresa and I talked about this, and we both identify, you know, there's a, a big word nowadays. So what do you identify with? We identify as southerners. You know, when I go up north, I appreciate things about it, but I don't feel like that's my culture so much anymore as when I come um, back down south. So uh, you want to tell us a little bit about your introduction to the, the sweet land of Dixie? Sure. I My parents were both born in Ohio and lived there their whole lives, got married there, and, you know, I was born shortly thereafter. I was only 
just turning seven when um, when our family decided to move down to North Carolina, and this was in the late 80s. I was leaving at that point, you know, seven years old. I was somewhat aware I was leaving everything I had known. My other family members, my neighbors and friends, the school I went to, and just basically, you know, the way of life. Um, moved down here and was <laughs> like... My parents, especially my mom, wasn't really much of a help in um, softening the blow of the culture shock because it just seemed like everything moved slower down here. And people were saying things. Like I remember my teacher in elementary school, um, Mrs. Tillman, and she had such an accent. And she would say things like, cut that light off and mash that button. And I was like, I don't know what she's even asking me to do. Looking back, you know, cutting the light off means not getting a ladder and a chainsaw. It's more like shutting the light off or, you know, turning it off. And mashing a button is pressing a button. But, you know, words, semantics. Um, And just feeling like I was more superior, even in my seven-year-old mind, that, uh, Folks were not only slow moving, but slow thinking, um, maybe a little more... Slow talking. Yeah, slow talking. I was going to say, like, they they chose their times to talk and and what they said. And to me, I was just like, yeah, 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 come on, come on, say it, spit it out. They even sipped their sweet tea slow. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I guess as far as my negative experience goes, yeah, it took quite a while for me to appreciate those things. Ooh, like the great blue heron that's flying over us right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one other, one other thing I wrote down was, uh, just not feeling like I fit in. Um, my last name is very ethnic and it didn't match anything of what other people's names were. I definitely was not from around here and building up a wall to really anybody that could potentially <laughs> be my friend because it was like, well, I'm not one of them. And so, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, like nobody wants to hang out with me because I'm not wanting to hang out with them. And I learned pretty early on that one of the uh, most damning things you can hear from a Southerner is, uh, so you ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> yeah. That carries a lot of meaning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was that was the, the bulk of it. I mean, there's other things, too, like just um, moving to small towns in North Carolina, uh, having the feeling that they were like, at least 20 years behind where I came from. And that's not saying much because I'm from like the Rust Belt. <laughs> yeah, well, I was born in New Hampshire and uh, my dad grew up in Virginia. So I suppose he was a Southerner, though I never thought of him like that um, growing up. And uh, my mom grew up in Vermont. So I'm born in New Hampshire and I live up there till I'm four. Um, and we moved down here. My dad moves down first. They have like a separation. Then they reconcile. My mom brings me with me and we join him, uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, which has a lot of, uh, civil rights and racial history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's Greensboro is really known for that part of history. Um, I think that was one of the first lunch counters where, uh, black, uh, college students maybe did a sit-in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved down here when I was four, and of course when you're four, I mean, what the hell do you know about the world? Um, and being in Greensboro, I don't feel like I really got that much um, of Southern culture. Being at that age, that really young age, and living in kind of on, on the outskirts of a city, 
When I feel like I really got a taste of the South was when I turned nine and we moved again to another part of North Carolina. And I'll never forget what it looked like um, being nine years old and the first time out in the country and realizing I'm about to live out here, seeing big fields of broom sedge and uh, full of pine trees. And uh, I remember how excited I was. Like, I was just thinking, man, look at all the, like, I could live out there. I could burrow through that grass and, like, make, like, a little shelter like a mouse. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> thinking like a survivalist. I was thinking like a, a kid with a really enthusiastic imagination. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just the woods really immediately called to me, the southern southern fields especially. Um, that's vivid in my mind. But I remember w- one memory I have before we even moved out to the country was my mom was working in a uh, department store of some kind and selling clothes, and there was this hat that I wanted, and it had a big Confederate flag on it. And uh, the only thing I knew about the Confederate flag was catching some episodes of Dukes of Hazard, and they had that really cool car, you know, that was always doing cool stuff and outrunning cops. So I was like, man, that's a cool flag. And uh, that was when my mom first gave me a talk about perception, about I probably don't want to wear that hat walking around town. <laughs> and uh, how that same thing that my child's brain, it's like, I'm seeing bright orange, I'm seeing pretty blue, I'm seeing stars like I see on superhero uniforms, um, painted on this really cool car of these guys that were the heroes of the show, you know, so it's all good associations. And I remember how interesting that was, trying to wrap my mind around how somebody else could look at the very same thing and uh, have a completely different interpretation, and not only of the symbol, but of who I might must be because I wear the symbol. Um So yeah, then we moved out to the country and into an all-black neighborhood. I didn't know it at the time. I wasn't thinking in these terms, but my dad had gotten like a, I think a demotion. He wasn't making as much money. So we actually moved into a bigger house, but it was out in the middle of nowhere in a black neighborhood. And growing up, all my friends were black Um, by default. You know, I kind of feel like most kids, your friends are whoever they are, just whoever's around you. You like Kool-Aid, I like Kool-Aid. Cool, we're friends. Um, But I learned a lot of... uh, stereotypes, the ones that aren't true, and the ones that are true. That's another baby that gets thrown out with the bathwater. For instance, I learned how to steal in these neighborhoods. Stealing was common. My friends stole. um, Hanging out with them, I stole. So when I hear people act like there's no difference between a white neighborhood and a black neighborhood when it comes to theft, it's it's just not true. It's not my experience anyway. Not my experience. Um, Yeah, and I, you know, we, we... would just steal. And generally, you know, when you're friends with somebody, you didn't steal from them. We had a code of conduct and everything. Um, we also played in the woods a lot. All of us, uh, you know, did all the things other kids did, watch TV. Um, and we'd pretend like we were characters from the TV and it wouldn't matter who was white or who was black. Um, my friend was always wanting to play the star of the show, which was often a white cartoon character like Rambo. So I'd always get relegated to the sidekick. So sometimes I'd be playing the black guy. Um, That's racist. Yeah. Never the woman, though. Neither one of us are playing the woman. We weren't ready for that back then. It was the the 80s. We won't woke yet. Um, And, yeah, I really uh, remember, like you said, having struggling with the way people talked. Suddenly people were using expressions. The one that I really had a hard time with was like to. Like people would say, I like to fell off that bicycle. (laughs) And I'd be like, why do you like to fall off a bicycle? (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just having all these expressions and the pace of how people talked. It was kind of like now when you watch King of the Hill and there's that character Boomhauer, like, dang, 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 dang. Like, I can't even do it. Can you do Boomhauer? Not really. You do voices pretty good. Mm-hmm. But he's completely <laughs> incomprehensible. And I remember, like, when a lot of people sounded like that to me. And, uh, 
Yeah, my dad once taught me when I was a kid, because I was asking about racism. You know, of course, this comes up in the South, this this topic, sooner or later. And uh, he said, up North, you're more likely to have people that will um, support the other race of people and other race of people as a group, but not as individuals. Mm-hmm. So in other words, yeah, I'm not racist. I like black people. I don't say anything like negative about black people. But then when they actually meet like a, a black person acting like a black person, um, they will more likely to not be as warm, not be as welcoming to the individual. They'd like to be rude. Yeah. And my dad taught me more often in the South the reverse will be true. You'll hear more things about that are negative that sound uh, negative towards the other race of people, words that are used that are, you know, insulting, etc. But they will more likely be the ones to pull over when they see somebody broken down, whether they're black or white, and or help Mexican them. Or Mexican or anything. Yeah, and help them or like actually have a black person over for dinner. And I got to tell you, as somebody that's been living in the South uh, basically my whole life, I have seen this to be true over and over and over. Um, there's a certain uh, certain old redneck guy we know well, both of us, <laughs> and um, he is as stereotypically racist as you can get without putting on a white hood. <laughs> Confederate flags everywhere, says the N-word, um, you know, and this guy used to just completely turn me off. I couldn't stand him. Every time he opened his mouth, I just would cringe. Things would come out of it that I just couldn't stand. But I tell you, over the years, I've watched this guy, and, uh, you know, I've seen black people, like, come down to where he lives, and he'll have them over for dinner, and just uh, the camaraderie between them. And I've even seen one of his white friends show up and use the N-word in front of these black people, and he kicked them off his property. Um, There was a lot more complexity to this code of conduct Mm. than people from the outside were allowing themselves to see. You know, then as I got older, I was around a more liberal crowd, and I'd hear them describe rednecks. And it's like, you guys don't have the whole picture. (laughs) I can tell you didn't grow up in a poor black neighborhood or a poor white neighborhood. You didn't grow up in a poor neighborhood. I can tell. Because a lot of these stereotypes that you're saying ain't true, there's some truth to them. And a lot of these things you're uh, condemning groups of people, you're not seeing the whole picture. Um, And I'd see that over and over with this guy. He'd like mow grass like sometimes for free with old people that needed help in the neighborhood um and yeah it was just it was exactly what my dad taught me you know that 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 for the individual it was more like this heritage they'd hold on to that i felt like was kind of slowly ebbing away Uh, more and more young people and here's another interesting thing i noticed in the south growing up is a lot of these redneck types would be the first ones to um be part of an interracial couple. Mm, mm-hmm. I'd see this in the late 80s, early 90s, when it was still surprising. Um, and would be one of the, some of the first people in my school, the people with the most country accent, lived out in a trailer way out in the middle of nowhere. They'd be the first ones listening to gangster rap, getting a loud <laughs> like radio in their, their trucks and cars, you know, adopting a lot of black culture that other people that supposedly were the more sophisticated urban types that uh, don't use those ugly words... We're not. And again, there was just more complexity going on, something else going on that I, even as a kid, I was realizing, man, this, this doesn't get talked about. Everything I'm learning about this, I'm learning from myself. And so many other things are, I see you're wanting to jump in there like really bad, Teresa. You go ahead. I'm pretty much done. 
you reminded me of something else that I experienced a while after I moved here. Um, probably a good, I don't know, 13 or so years after I'd moved here. And I'd been living in this small, really small southern town with a weird name. And um, What was it? Fuqua Verena. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> you want to tell the story about the phone, like when your your dad would ask, like... Uh, oh, my mom, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, um, she, she has a cell phone that has a British woman's voice that tells her, like, the weather or whatever. A hot British woman's and voice. She's a saucy wench. <laughs> my mom will ask her phone, like, what's the weather in Fuqua Verena? And the woman will say, the weather today in Fucky Verena is <laughs> this. Anyway... Um, I worked at this uh, home improvement store in Fuquay, and uh, oh boy, I'm really like telling everybody's business. But there was this guy, a uh, black guy, and he was like one of the most countryest black dudes I ever, ever, ever encountered. Really? How many? Um, do you do you know a lot of country? Like wearing um, camo and like going talking about fishing and hunting and all that. There's a lot more people like that out there than uh, I used to realize. Yeah. Yeah, there there are. Like, even in where we go out in the country in the field we park in, yeah. um, the, there's a neighbor there that we don't really – we don't talk to our neighbors out there because we're trying to stay hidden. <laughs> we're not supposed to be where we are. But, yeah, there's a black guy that lives out there with a cowboy hat, cowboy yeah. boots. He's got horses. I mean, he's a, he's as country as anybody out, out there. Yeah, and, and this particular guy, like, he um, had a friendship. I'm, I believe it was just a friendship. Um, but with a, a young white woman and people were kind of telling them, like, don't do that. But they were like, no, we're just we get each other. Like we understand like all these songs and like all this culture that we both grew up in. So, you know, whenever they talk about something, it's just because they're friends. And it was just an interesting experience for me to watch this, you know, still holding on to a lot of my uh, preconceived notions from the north. But I also wanted to say that when I lived in Ohio, I didn't really see a whole lot of black people. And I'll tell you why. I'm not saying that there aren't uh, black, you know, like Gumby was saying, poor black neighborhoods or, or black neighborhoods. But in Ohio, I will tell you this. There's a train track and one side is brown town and one side ain't. And you could go on the other side of the tracks during the day. Um maybe to go to some, you know, store that you wanted to go to, but there weren't too many white people sticking around late at night. And I don't know what you call that, but, um, it, it doesn't seem like the, uh, I guess the image that people want of the North, even though Ohio's kind of Midwest. Yeah. I, w- I was, wasn't necessarily going to go here next, but it seems like kind of a good time to talk about racism. Cause when we were talking about, What's the main stereotype about the South? Why the South, you know, all things that are kind of Southern culture getting lumped together. You know, I I hear this word identity politics now, you know, like if you believe this, then you must be in this group. Identify with this and this must mean you believe in all these other things as well. Your jacket, your camo king of the mountain jacket. Yeah, it's a package deal. I've got a... You know, I hold on to very few clothes, and my warmest jacket happens to be a really, like, high-quality wool camouflage jacket. And I definitely get a vibe when I wear that. Some of it might be in my head, but not all of it, where people will look at me different, because I'm a white guy with a beard wearing a camouflage jacket. (laughs) So that must mean, you know, I probably voted for Trump. Uh, You know, I go hunting, I go fishing, I probably grew up in a racist family, probably racist myself. Um, You know, it's just kind of this big package deal. 
And uh, you might have stormed the Capitol. I might have stormed the Capitol. I'm kind of ashamed I didn't. <laughs> and yeah, so let's talk a little bit about racism. Obviously, there's racism in the South. You'd have to be a damn fool to just deny that right. altogether. Um, but my own experience with it, and when I learn more about history, it's not what it seems. It's not the story that I'm hearing told on the news and from the liberal left and uh, on the outside. Um, for one thing, I already got into it a little bit with what my dad said. You know, there are different kinds of racism. So when we're attacking what's called racism in the South, it's a specific kind of racism. It's not that the North has ever been less racist, at least in my reading of history. There are some groups, like the Quakers especially, jump out in my mind that seem like, I don't know that I'd call them uh, racist, but... They were often the people helping, like they were abolitionists. That's what I mean. Yeah. And sometimes the helpers are racist themselves. That's true. Because the so-called helpers, man, I don't know even know where to get into this because it makes me think of uh, the Civil War, the Democratic Party, and kind of the, the flipping of the narrative around the uh, Lyndon Johnson administration when the Democratic Party, who's always been openly racist um, since Thomas Jefferson, um, racist towards Indians, racist towards uh, – Pretty much anybody except not just whites, rich whites. Yeah, landowning. That, that is an ex- extremely important distinction. Uh, when you leave out the rich part, you're telling a lie. You're telling a half-truth that's so close to a lie it might as well be a lie. And that's one of the problems with the narrative getting told nowadays is uh, I hate this idea of like white privilege. If you're white, it doesn't matter who you are. Um, you've got privileges, and your job is to therefore extend these great privileges as much as you can to just acknowledge them, to own them, and try to extend them to other people. I find this to be extremely racist, and it's the kind of racism I see on the left and more up north, and I call it like – I'm starting to call it covert racism. It's a form of racism that at first doesn't seem racist until you're willing to use some intelligence, use some uh, – Thought to dive into this, what does it mean? White privilege, for instance. Who's privileged? The people that got it made, the people that won. You know, if you're privileged, your job is never to um, act like someone else, because why would you? They're not privileged. They don't have the good life. Why would you give up the good life to go have the bad life? The good life tries to open as many doors as possible if you're a good, warm-hearted person and allow more people to have the good life. I find that to be an extremely racist sentiment because what we're calling the good life is a colonial life, is a colonizing life, is a life that uh, is only superficially happy. Yeah, you might see white people in big houses with computers and everything, but man, you spend any time with these people? I lived out in the country with a lot of different races of people, and I've been around the people in the big houses. I do not think the people in the big houses are happier. If I was going to say one or the other, I'd say they tend to be less happy. Hmm. Um, That is not something to aspire to. And the kind of mindset that allows you to have so much more than your neighbor, that doesn't make a happy person. That's not something to aspire to. And you start just going down the list. More reliance on uh, more technology because you can afford it. That's not something to aspire to. Almost right down the list, I find things that are not privileges they're more like a disease, and we've mm. talked about this. We call it like wetico, which is a uh, an appropriated term from uh, Indians, uh, American Indians that live on this country. Um, of course, that would be the American Indians. And yeah, what do you think about what I'm talking about here? Because we were talking all morning about racism, and the it sucks because we'll get all geared <laughs> up, and then it's like then we're trying to remember what we talked about. 
Well, you were starting to to delve into um, something else that I've read, the term paternalism. And that was where, um, especially, I guess this was during either right before or during Reconstruction in the South, after the Civil War, how families who may have owned slaves, um, they were, you know, giving money. And it, I mean, it seems to be a good thing if, if they're like, well, you know, we've got all this money and, and now there are all these people who are newly freed. Like, how are they going to feed themselves? They don't have a, a garden already planted. They don't even have like a business set up and who's going to hire them because there's, you know, just it's just very chaotic down here. Um, so the, a lot of white people who had money, well, which weren't a whole lot of people anyway in the South then, but the people that did have money, they would fund, um, separate churches, read, you know, segregation in many ways, but they would give land for the churches to be built. They would give, um, a schoolhouse, albeit maybe filled with old desks and old chairs instead of the new stuff that the white kids got and would even give opportunities for, uh, you know, black entrepreneurs, um, whether that was like giving them some money to start a life insurance company of all things, or a, a bank where a black run bank would cater to the black community. So you start to see how the rich white class was, um, in many ways setting up like, okay, this is your town over here with your bank and your, you know, businesses, and this is our town over here. But it's that idea also that they have to be just like us that you are starting to get into. Like, why can't they be, why can't black people and black culture exist, uh, in a way that it doesn't, like, it it doesn't have to look like white culture. Yeah, because if either culture, and let's face it, the white as the dominant culture, um, it's always the white culture in this country that other cultures have to mimic to survive in this culture. Um, with some, some exceptions on a smaller scale, I definitely see, like, for instance, when I grew up in a black neighborhood, um, there were things I did that weren't typical of white kids, I didn't realize until later, um, to fit in, you know? So it's kind of, it's adaptability. And I, I think the roots of what we call racism aren't necessarily bad. And I know that alone is a startling statement, but I think the roots of racism are what you might call tribalism. When I read about tribes of people that are strong, that are intact, that I would consider healthier communities, and this is where I always look when I wonder, what is a healthy human being? What does a healthy culture look like? I always look to the indigenous cultures. Um, and I see over and over the name of these people will often mean the people, not just a people. Or the human being. The human beings. And that they take great pride, that what you see over and over is a feeling like we are the best, the chosen ones, <laughs> and everybody else is a little lesser because they're not us. Mm -hmm. But it's not quite exactly that. It's hard to talk about when I, I try to like uh, understand what I'm reading, what I'm what I'm interpreting here, because um, it's not that that kind of arrogance we would have in our culture with these thoughts. It's also a recognition that everybody has a place. So even your enemies. You're really proud to be, let's say, shit, I can't remember the, the tribes, but uh, you're really proud to be of your tribe. And you really, anytime you see this person of another tribe, you don't like that person. But you don't want to wipe out that other tribe. 
because that tribe is how you prove your strength. You have a relationship with that tribe. Mm -hmm. So it's not the kind of hatred we're taught in our culture where you actually want to decimate and wipe out other cultures. It's more a pride in yourself. And uh, I thought I found it really interesting when you were studying the Black Panthers. That was echoed over and over. Yeah. Like, take pride in yourself. And I, I remember thinking, like, what what would it look like to take pride in my race? Yeah. And even the word white pride <laughs> is a damning yeah. two words to put together. We're not supposed to be proud of who we are. And indeed, there's so much in our culture that's alive today in our history not to be proud of. But who we are, is it not maybe more empowering to look deeper than that and find the things we can be proud of and inflate that? What's that called? Positive reinforcement? Instead of just white guilt that we're taught? What the fuck good is that to walk around and like, well, I'm not actually willing to move out of my middle class neighborhood. I'm certainly not going to give up that swanky coffee shop I like so much. I'm just going to feel guilty all the time. And that's enough. That's enough. That's ridiculous. Um, so I kind of like in the South, I feel like there's more of a tribalism, you know, when I, I think of like, I walk into a place and people like to be around people that are like them. Some of people, some people divide that by color. Some people divide that by interest. Some people divide that by sex, you know, even within a tribe, um, we see more of this kind of like women wanting to hang out with women to do the things that women do in the tribe, men going on the whatever hunting parties, uh, traditions that are unique to men or women. You don't see a man demanding entrance into the moon lodge because he identifies as a woman. <laughs> you know, you just see people that are happy in their groups, even within groups. And I th- think when we talk about modern racism, We're talking about the melting pot. We're talking about an empire. We're talking about a cultural umbrella that takes all these different people, and we pretend like they're not different. I've even heard it said there's no such thing as race. I find that ridiculous. I don't see color. Yeah, I don't see color. At first, that was something you'd hear on the left. I don't see color, and that was meant to show that, like, oh, I don't don't consider that uh, at all. And then uh, somewhere on the left, somebody decided, well, that's a racist term itself. So you don't hear the left say that anymore. You know, then they all of a sudden see nothing but color. Uh, butt color. Mm. Like, for instance, if Obama has a skin color that makes us feel like more diversity is going into our politics, everything he does, by extension, he must be a great president. Let's ignore how many bombs he drops on other countries, <laughs> how many small brown children that are poor in other countries that are civilians have died because of uh, the decisions he makes. Let's just ignore all that. Let's ignore how well he's taken care of the poor blacks in America. Mm. Um I'm really surprised when I talk to, to black people like at the library or uh, some of the people we know how often you'll see people that you expect the most to support Obama disillusioned. And also some of those same people support Trump. And we're taught like, oh, if you – you know, I've seen so many leftists post things that if you support Trump, you are a racist. This is a racist act. How dare you? Didn't Biden say something like if you're black and you're not voting Democrat – you ain't black enough or something yeah, or something like that. And I was just, I mean, it just goes to show you that there is such a thing rampant right now as identity politics. And I just, I mean, personally knowing a black woman who not only voted for Trump, but she also says she doesn't see color. Um, and she's deaf too. So that's an <laughs> unfortunate thing. Um, you really 
are taking away a person's identity by lumping them together by their skin color or who they vote for. You're taking away their individuality. And how is that not as bad as some of the other things that we decry in our culture today? Yeah, it's more that covert racism I'm talking about. Like to deplatform white men, all white men. Um, that's bullcrap. Anybody who's poor and struggling, whether you're black or white, knows better. You know, I've, I've seen, I've been in so many jobs where I'm working with, uh, the, the poorer and more blue collar your job is, the more likely, at least in my experience, that you are to work with a wide range of people. I mean, not just like people with different skin colors, but people actually from different countries, people who talk different. Um, I don't know. There's something about that kind of salt of the earth, poverty, poorness, struggle that I feel like connects you more to some kind of roots in a way, even at the same time, it's not, it's uh, dividing you from it. Um, but yeah, this whole like covert racism, I kind of prefer the open racism in the South. And this is why, because I think when things are open, they come into the light more, they're more apt to be talked about and they're more apt to erode. They're more apt to evolve covert things. You haven't even seen them yet. They're pretending to be something they're not. And so it seems like something so insidious and poisonous and venomous and strong. Uh, Teresa and I were uh, recently talking, and we both thought we were noticing the same thing in the South, a slow erosion of some of the old uh, racism, Um, the N-word getting used less and less. People, uh, any racism that was um, remaining, it seemed to be waning. Um, And this, I I am specifically talking about, although again, not a scholar on this, uh, specifically I was thinking of like the late 90s, early 2000s, like 2003, 2005. Yeah, it was happening naturally through contact. And that was before Obama. Yeah, and like segregation, I think, is another complicated thing. You know, like the Black Panthers actually seem to favor a form of segregation, but they actually wanted good things. That was the problem with segregation. It wasn't that people were divided, because for the most part, most people were happy hanging out with people like them. It was that one group was getting all the crappy shit. And one group was getting all the good stuff. That was the problem. So, damn, I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> well, I'll jump but in. anyway, I, I, one of the powers of eroding that segregation is contact. Because a lot of the people, like, to really dislike a whole group of people, I feel like you kind of have to not know them. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And, and so the segregation, let me finish this thought. Okay. The segregation allowed people to get to know, and I think this was the erosion of that old, old-time old racism. Slowly over the decades, people were getting to know each other. People were having to work together. Uh, suddenly, it's not just black people. It's uh, Miss Rose, you know, that I work with that always brings me, like, remembers my birthday, you know? And this is the South I was seeing. Even in, in the, the short time I've lived here, I was seeing a trend happen. And I feel like this identity politics, I think possibly by design, came charging in, pushing people, pushing you into corners, telling you, fuck you, you're in this group because of this. You wear a camouflage jacket. You must be this. You voted for Trump. You're that. And people reacted. Everybody got reactive. And uh, I feel like that's there is possibly a spike in racism, although I'm not even sure of that because I don't see that in front of me. Maybe that's just the media. You know, trying to drum up division, which has been happening since the beginning. Keep the poor fighting with each other. Keep the the blacks thinking their enemies the whites. The whites thinking their enemies the blacks. While the rich people of that 
are growing more and more diverse, but they're still all bastards. They laugh their way to the bank. They're fucking both of them. Theresa, did you have? You look like. I was going to jump in there and say, you know, as many things in life, it's not <laughs> black and white. It's not uh, cut and dry either. Uh, because we were also talking about, like, uh, that guy Ted that we know, mm-hmm. who's a black guy. And, you know, I say black guy. Maybe I should say person of color, putting the person first. And what the hell's up with that? Like, they, there used to be know. colored people was a term, and then that's considered racist. And now we're, like, moving back towards it. Now people of color is, like, the approved term. I mean, it's just so fucking arbitrary and ridiculous. And, you know, it's not exactly the same as, like, oh, I don't see color. But I'm sure Ted would just like us to see him as Ted, not the black guy or the person of color. Like, we're just talking to another person. Yeah, there's this great video I watched uh, getting ready for this episode, trying to explore the subject a little bit more with Morgan Freeman being interviewed on maybe 60 Minutes, and it's a little clip, and they're asking him about about Black History Month. And uh, he's saying kind of what you're saying here, like, I wish we didn't have Black History Month. I think that just reinforces racism. There's only history to, like, try to, like— You know, it's kind of this covert racism I'm talking about. Like, black history at first sounds like let's celebrate black people. But what it amounts to when you dig a little deeper is let's single them out. Mm -hmm. Their history is different. They're still not part of our culture because where's Jewish History Month? Mm -hmm. And as Morgan Freeman asked, you know, the guy interviewing him, he was like, and I can't remember which interviewer this was, he's like, which month is White History Month? (laughs) And, you know, if you talk to a liberal, they'll be like, oh, the rest of the year is White History Month. But Morgan Freeman wasn't buying it. He's like, history is history. If we've got to integrate certain facts, let's do it. But let's not single it out. And he told the guy, I won't call you a white man if you don't call me a black man. Let's just be people. Call me Morgan Freeman and I'll call you whatever the guy's name was. And I really like that sentiment. To me, that's kind of the South I know. And when I think about like segregation, contact, and what my dad said about like up north – They'd be quicker to uh, support a group, but not an individual. Remember when we went up north, how many all-white towns we saw? Yeah. I mean, we just see nothing but white people. Further out north we went, so like white people, white people. And we noticed those neighborhoods were clean and peaceful. And I don't think it's because there's white people. I think it's because it's people around their own. They took pride in who they were. Mm, I think there's something in, in the culture. It's not the South, as in white people doing it to black people, I feel like it's the politicians. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into particularly the Democratic Party because they work together. It's the Republicans, too. But this sort of uh, people forced to integrate in ways that aren't natural to them. And again, I feel like the Black Panther Party saw this. You know, it doesn't mean like people don't hang out or whatever. It means it's not forced. You can I think after the Civil War, like a big – a bad thing that happened was that autonomy was taken away from the black people. The government immediately moved in and found another way to control not just the black people. I'm following into, falling into that trap. Also the white people, welfare, poor white people, poor immigrants. One of the worst racial – racist violence that happened during the Civil War wasn't in the South. It was in New York. 
and it was because immigrants were getting signed up to the Union Army as soon as they got off the boat, and any white people that didn't have enough money to buy their way out, if you had enough money, you could pay somebody else to take your place and join the army. But the poor people were screwed, and so they were having to go fight this war, and unfortunately, they turned that that venom and hatred. Once again, it got channeled against the blacks instead of the rich people that were doing it. That's a mistake that happens over and over. And uh, same thing in the South, you know, that Confederate flag, I feel like really gets misunderstood by both sides. If you're a Southerner, like a good old-fashioned salt of the earth, I go hunting and fishing Southerner, you should recognize what that flag is. That flag is a democratic symbol of rich people. Those were the people that were sending poor people out to fight and die. The poor whites didn't own slaves. They couldn't afford a slave. It was like buying a house. And even if they did, they didn't have the land to like keep a slave busy and profitable. It just wasn't part of their actual culture. They were hornswoggled into it, as you might say, in the South. <laughs> and just like if you're up north, you could buy somebody to take your place. It, down south, if you owned a certain amount of slaves, you were exempt from fighting in the war. Hmm. And who would own that many slaves? The richest of the rich. So both sides were getting screwed by the rich, and both sides had rich people, north and south, that were sitting back, safely away from the battles, finding ways to profit. Yeah, laughing the whole way. Laughing the whole way. So, you know, a southern person, if they really understood that flag, I don't think they would take the same pride in that flag that they do now. And likewise, the northern people, or I wouldn't even say northern people at this point, let's just say the left, liberals. I reckon. People opposed to the flag, in other words. Opposed to what flag? The Confederate flag. They, I don't think, understand the flag because when they single it out and say, well, think about the history. Think about what it represents. Think about the (laughs) symbolism. Think about how much slavery was under this flag. It's so arbitrary. Why pick on this symbol? Jesus Christ, you want to compare the history of the Confederate flag to the history of the American flag? Yeah. As far as violence goes? Jesus Christ, why pick on the, the little... You know, wimpy kid in class. Do you do that just so you don't have to deal with the real bully over there in the corner and still feel like a tough guy? I mean, you know, if you want to attack all the flags, great. Uh, I think all these symbols are just part of what divides us. Mm -hmm. But to pick on the the Confederate flag like it's the the, the bad guy, um, I think that's ridiculous. And I know for a fact when people use that, like have that Confederate flag, and uh, when somebody tries to say, oh, it's always racist – it's not. At the worst, I think maybe it's insensitive because you're just saying like, well, you know, if you feel that way about the flag, that's not the way I feel about it. So you could call that insensitivity. But when I took off to be a hobo, I went hitchhiking all the way up to Alaska, worked the summer in Alaska. And until then, I thought of myself as a northerner because I grew up around rednecks that didn't talk like me. Uh, I even had one say, you know, your granddaddy probably fought my granddaddy in the Civil War. And I had to find out what the hell the Civil War was. <laughs> so I was like, man, when I get my chance, when I get old enough, I'm going to go back up north. That's my home. So I'm hitchhiking through the north. And, uh, yeah, just people talking faster. Uh, people not knowing how to give directions. I'd ask, like, where to go. And people wouldn't even know what the hell the, na- the name of the road right in front of them was. Um, there were just things that I was used to in the south. And it, it by the time I got back down south, uh, and I started getting treated like a dumb Southerner. People would make fun of my accent sometimes. Didn't even know I had an accent. <laughs> and, uh, well, you must be from the South, ain't you, boy? You know, I'd actually have people up North talk to me like that. Never felt like that before. Um, but it was an interesting window. So when I came down South, I was back down, down South. I was so happy to be home. And I realized, man, I am actually proud to be a Southerner. I am a Southerner. 
and I got a little Confederate flag sticker and put it on the back of my truck. And I know for a fact there was no racist sentiment in that. When I had that sticker, I was working at a graveyard with nothing but black guys. Once again, I was the only white guy there. Nobody had a problem with it. They're like, well, white guy with a Confederate flag. We've seen that before. Big deal. You know, we didn't talk about it. We were just talked about whatever, you know, work together. Um, yeah, so to say it's always a racist symbol, I just know for a fact in my own experience is not true. Now, to say it's a racist symbol for some people, yeah. But also to say that the American flag, for instance, is a bloody uh, don't tread on me, you know, hoorah, we got to do what we got to do symbol for a lot of people <laughs> is also true. Yeah, you give the symbol the, the power so you can decide. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, we're coming to the end of this episode, Teresa. Is there anything that, you know, man, there, we had a lot to talk about. But uh, I'd say unless there's something, you know, really you want to mention in lieu of like some of the stereotypes we want to counter about the South, um, I'd like to talk about some of the things we love about the South. Like let's end on a high note because yeah. when we talk about getting rid of Southern culture, um, all right, maybe you acknowledge that there's different forms of racism and you're saying, well, let's get rid of that form of racism in the South. Um, but there's some things you're, you're sending away with it because when I grew up here, there was a lot more kids walking around barefoot. There was a lot more kids going fishing. Um, you know, it looked a little bit more like the Andy Griffith show, I got to say. And now there's bagel shops, there's New York pizza, there's, you know, it's just... Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, Jesus Christ. They're nasty. Yeah, people up north seem to love Dunkin' Donuts. I have no idea why. Have they never tasted a Krispy Kreme? Not fresh, probably. Yeah, Krispy Kreme. Gotta love that about the South. <laughs> and in lieu of restaurants, Bojangles. We just went there this morning, man. I if When Bojangles closes down, I'm done. <laughs> Bojangles Chicken and Biscuits. Biscuits. You cannot get biscuits any other part of the United States, probably nowhere else in the world, a, a buttery, flaky, delicious biscuit. Worst biscuit I ever had was from Colorado, and I might as well have been eating a rock. And uh, I guess for that matter, just like all sorts of food. You want to jump in and, and say one of them? I mean, Bojangles was kind of mine. <laughs> we had barbecue yesterday. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Carolina barbecue. And actually, we had Carolina barbecue up in Maine. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a part of what I wish we had more of is like places getting to stay unique. How special would it be if the only place to get Carolina barbecue was North Carolina? How special would New York pizza be if you could only have it when you went to New York? Yeah. So making it so damn accessible, I feel like, just takes the specialness of it. Everywhere in the world starting to look like everywhere else. You yeah. go to Santa Rosa, California, and it looks just like Cary, North Carolina. So I'd like to say leave some of the Southern culture alone. I mean, obviously, if there's you got a particularly hateful place in the South that's, uh, you know, somebody's getting lynched, yeah, fucking stop it, of course. But when we're talking about people going barefoot and fishing and we're talking about, like, uh, people saying y'all and wrecking and bless your heart, <laughs> leave that alone. There's a lot of good there. I love the slow pace of the South. Yeah, that grew on me, actually, because if you live on this land and you're not holding on to a, a notion that you have from the North, you start to understand. It might take a while, but you start to understand why... Things move slower in the South. Yeah, I remember I worked on this one job as an electrician's apprentice, and we were all like good old Southern boys, you know. I mean, they uh, 
<laughs> one thing I learned is like when you get a nickname, nicknames are great in the South and Southerners love to get nicknames. And, uh, you know, I feel like Southerners, that whole yank from around here kind of thing, it's sort of like, just like everybody else, they see you as a group first. And what they're used to from out-of-towners is people that come in to change them, people that think their ways are better, people that think Southern, poor Southern people are backwards. Um, you know, that's got deep roots. Going back to the carpetbaggers from up north after the Civil War, a lot of uh, Northern industrialists came charging in right after the Civil War and started buying up land and uh, not living there, just like you know, hiring sharecroppers to farm it that always had to stay poor and struggling or to log the land. Um, but the Northerners did a lot of damage. So that whole like Southern uh, tie to their land and like those damn Yankees coming down here, it's got roots that got passed down through generations with some truth in it. But once you get my, my, my nickname, you know, and I'm uh, seen as an individual, they didn't care if I talked a little funny. You know, <laughs> they, or if you weren't from around here. Yeah, the South loves characters. If you're a little off, you're a little funny. Even before queer got adopted by the uh, the the LGBTQ, uh, I forgot all the letters. Yeah. But that movement, you know, I'd hear Southerners say he's a little quar, <laughs> and it didn't mean gay. It just meant like weird. He yeah. ain't quite right. He's a little quar. <laughs> I even had a Southerner explain to me like queer ain't queer. It's different. <laughs> so. We were working, and then they hired this new supervisor that was from the north, fresh out of New York. And, man, he tried to put down the hammer to show the the guy that ran the company, like, oh, you hired a good one now. I'm going to get these guys moving. And suddenly, like, there's 15-minute breaks. Before that, we'd take a break. That break lasted when the conversation was over, when we got drank enough coffee and we were ready to go back to work. You know, there was enough work getting done, but nobody was getting filthy, rotten, stinking rich. Mm -hmm. But that's we didn't want to work like that. If you got to work your ass off, work your balls off to get filthy, rotten, stinking rich, it can keep it. In the South, it gets fucking hot. It's stupid <laughs> to move fast in a lot of this weather. There you sweat you yourself to death. You slow down. You enjoy the things that are a little more free. You know, I feel like so much of my philosophy is influenced by Southern culture. You make time to go fishing. And how much money do you need to go fishing? We still haven't gone fishing. We got to go fishing. We go fishing, but not but much. We basically had a revolt against this New York guy. I remember that week he came in, and by the end of the week, he'd given up. He <laughs> had just given up. Because <laughs> it's one thing to single out one person working slow and to threaten them and everything, but when your whole crew just looks at you like you're stupid, when you come in and say, all right, break time's over, you'd be like, all right, we'll be there in a minute. And then you take your damn time. He just couldn't do anything with it. So by the end of the week, I think even the guy that ran the company, also a Southerner, was sort of like, you ain't been, you ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> um, for that matter, the culture in Appalachia, which extends, I mean, it could be from, what, Georgia all the way up into Pennsylvania. Um, but a lot of, especially, uh, you know, liberals, people that are trying to be like plant healers and shamans and all that, um, they're looking for the information that was kept by these what, you know, some people would call backwards, you know, too slow to move on people that lived in the mountains. But they're the they're the only ones that remember these certain life ways. Um, so I feel like that culture in the mountains is something that I like about the South. Mm-hmm. And another thing I like about the South is rednecks. Not <laughs> not all the time. Rednecks can be uh, pretty damn uh, obnoxious. We just saw a uh, 
a black guy this morning in this park pull what I'd call a redneck move. We don't even know how the hell he got his truck back here, but it was like <laughs> in a place obviously for pedestrians way off on a sidewalk, and he's sitting in the muddiest damn place. <laughs> it's like, that's some redneck shit right there. I wonder if before that happened, that was like, hold my beer, you know? And the rednecks have a proud history. You know, I wish more rednecks got taught where that name came from. It was uh, like Wobblies. It was like people uh, during, I don't know if it's necessarily the wob- Wobblies specifically, but uh, people standing up to the corporation, strikers, uh, protesters, people saying like, well, you want to screw us over? You know, people fighting the rich. We won't work then. We're going to arm ourselves. We're going to fight. The rednecks came from like West Virginia, the coal mines, people that were really making a stand. It's a proud tradition. And they would tie a red bandana around their neck. It became part of their symbol. So that this name's gotten twisted to just talk about like people you think are less smart than you. And by the way, how many of you people have gone to college that think you're so so sophisticated, know how to work on your own car, (laughs) know how to fix your own plumbing, know how to wire a house? I mean – there's different kinds of intelligence, and to favor one and act like the other isn't intelligent, you know, a lot of these uh, so-called rednecks might not read all the books that you read. But they get her done. Yeah, and how much good are those books doing you? Like, what are you doing with those books? Mm-hmm. You know, like, when I need somebody to give me a hand, I'm happy to see a redneck. And, uh, you know, I've even had liberals say, well, that's that's that just shows your white privilege. What do you think happens with the black guy? I know what happens with the black guy. They fucking see a redneck coming, and for the most part, they're happy to see him, too. Because <laughs> that's just the guy's pulling him out of the ditch and everything. Um, so, yeah, rednecks. Jeff Foxworthy, you know, he's got all those, you might be a redneck. I love those, and every redneck I know loves those because they're almost all true. I asked on my Facebook page recently just to see what would happen. Like, what do y'all like about or love about the South? And I used the word y'all. And I was actually expecting that no one would touch it. Because of all the backlash, you know, whether it's uh, white supremacy, racism. Oh, speaking about loving the South and touching it, Daisy Dukes. Oh, boy. Man, Southern girls with long tan legs with their tight, their uh, uh, little cut-off jeans. And let's face it, this longer warm season, less clothes for more periods of time. There ain't nothing not to like about that. Hmm. Right, Teresa? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I have no idea where I was going, but... Daisy Dukes. Um, Yeah, Daisy Dukes. Oh, you were talking about the people on that uh, Facebook post about what they loved about the South. Oh, yeah. So Bojangles, once again, was mentioned. Um, Having the mountains and the beach in the same state in North Carolina, and I guess um, maybe a little bit in South Carolina, although their mountains aren't as big. Um, But, yeah, where do you go in the winter if you want to get warm? The South. And you can actually go in the oceans down here, uh, especially in the summertime, and not freeze your ass off. Oh, and old people. I didn't even think about this until this moment, but I'm thinking about so many of the old people, both black and white, whatever color, people that have grown up here and remember the old South and have grown old here. There's a certain quality. I mean, old people, you know, wherever you find them can be pretty nice people to talk to. But I feel like up north, I don't know if it's the long winters, you tend to be a little more reserved. Hmm. But something about the old people down here in the south, man, like I've just known so many like Miss Roses and Miss Susie and whatever. <laughs> and, you know, they'll just say shit that'll make your mouth drop. Like, I can't believe she just said that. <laughs> but they're so damn nice. There's this guy with a MAGA hat that uh, every time I go behind this one pet smart, if I stick around long enough to like organize my van or whatever, this old guy comes walking his old golden retriever. And every time he sees me, he comes over and he just like 
shoves like a five dollar at me. Says here, <laughs> he says you get that dog something good to eat. Oh my god! And uh, I don't know if he give it to a black guy or not. You know, I always think about that because people. I've had so many people when I say what a nice thing that is, turn that around and make me like make it into a racist act. <laughs> but I honestly don't know, and I'm just thankful. And like I said, you know, I've known so many like characters, old black men that just like, you know, say the craziest shit and just don't edit what comes out of their mouth. And uh, I love that about the South. Spanish moss in Savannah. I really like that about the South and Southern drawl from Georgia. There's a very distinct uh, accent from especially it's maybe in the older generation, like 60s or 70s from did Georgia. The, did the English actors that play Maggie or Rick on uh, Walking Dead, do they do they get it right, that no. Southern, that Georgian? No, they did something. We all got jobs to do. Yeah, it's a little sweeter than that, though. I can't I can't do it. Like a Southern peach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another thing about rednecks is I like the defiance in the South. I like that, uh, you know, I feel like there's more of that spirit that maybe goes back to the Civil War. You know, a culture that once defied the United States of America, that once said, <laughs> fuck you, we're going to go do our, make our own country. Um, you know, it wasn't slavery against freedom. The, that's not how I read the Civil War. It's what kind of slavery will prevail, wage slavery, disposable people, or chattel slavery um, based on skin color. Um and so one, one form of slavery prevailed, and instead of, like, addressing that form of slavery more, we're still, like, arguing about the old form of slavery for some damn reason. Um, but, yeah, those rednecks, man, they have a history of defiance, you know, like, oh, you want outlaw guns? Come get mine. And I feel like that is some – if there's any American heritage I'm proud of, it's the part that stood up against power and authority, and that's always been there. Research any decade, and you will find groups of people who have banded together and fought the power, um, all the way down to George Washington and the Whiskey Rebellion. And that spirit is really alive and strong in the rednecks. And like I said, even the name redneck remembers that. Mardi Gras, shrimp and grits, gumbo, and blues music. Nobody knows how to party like a Southerner. <laughs> if you can survive a Southern party, you got something going for you. <laughs> You're not. Uh, it's like a health test. If you die during a southern party, you were probably on your way out. Mm, nanner pudding. Mmm. Yeah. Or banana pudding. <laughs> Cookout. Oh crap! I forgot that. Yeah. Cookout has some of the best milkshakes and quesadillas. Mmm. They mix it up. I don't think that restaurant is anywhere else in the world. All right. We out of time with our southern love. You got any last thing you want to say before we? Uh, I, I read my listener right in. I reckon not. Oh, and that's another thing, reckon. <laughs> Some of the words I have really loved in the South that, like, I feel like are more poetic. Reckon, y'all. One that I never never uh, cottoned up to. Oh. Ooh, yeah, I pulled that one out, was yonder. I still don't know where the fuck yonder is. It's yonder. Yeah, I just, I've <laughs> never warmed up to that one. All right, my listener write-in. I got Kelly from South Hill, Virginia. Oh, my. Kelly. Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. All right, I'm going to try to read it like Kelly. That's going to be hard. Mm. All right, she's talking about Tranny Granny. That was one of our podcasts. Yeah, that's one of our podcast episodes. And uh, Kelly was actually one of our informants that gave us information um, that helped us prepare for this. No, I'm not going to try to read it like Kelly. <laughs> it's hard enough to read it Southern. Listening to y'all fan episode, it's good. And also, there's so much that isn't true. So uh, that was a really crappy shit sandwich. You're supposed to start with something good. She just came right out with it. She grew up in a Christian cult, the John Birch Society. 
They were military preppers, and she was super abused by her family growing up, and sexually, too. She became a woman, in part, because it was easier to manipulate people, in her words. She was super traumatized and ran to the desert to get away from the fucked-up shot she experienced. But she also had partners that were killed by cowboys and was targeted by cowboys and ranchers a lot while living out there, but also was friends with cops and ranchers, and they were also her biggest allies. Some natives loved her and some hated her. The part about her being a born-again Christian, I'm not sure about. She grew up fundamental Christian and used that language in her manipulations, though she wasn't necessarily Christian. She was embraced by some natives as a sacred two-spirit and some as a stick Indian, a bad spirit. Not necessarily due to her transness. The Christian thing on her rig was a front. She knew how to create an aura to get what she wanted from people. And the bundle is a whole thing that I could explain, or my partner could, but actually getting out on the land, it would make a lot more sense. She actually had a sweet part of her. If you got through the initiation of her coyote, you would see it, or if she wanted to reel you in. She usually fucked people over because she didn't want to get too close to people, and didn't trust them because of her childhood trauma. She cycled through hundreds of young, enthusiastic people. In the end, she knew more than anyone. A lot of native people in the West still wild tend and practice those ways, way more than people realize. It hasn't been as long as long colonization. She was also very dualistic. Babylon is everywhere. Wildness is everywhere. There is no divide. She was very either-or about that. She grew up in a militant cult. She used that language. But wild tending, anyone can do anywhere. And we do have a duty to do it. Humans are a part of nature, and we have tended landscapes for as long as we have been human. And if we don't integrate it into our lives, even if we don't live primitively, we can do it. We can wild tend by planting persimmon seeds, or cutting back certain plants, or do control burns. The Piedmont has plants that 100% depended on fire, like longleaf pine. And we rarely have lightning fires here. What does that tell you? And fires were used for hunting to clear forest? What Finn was doing is the way we need to live, but the way she communicated it made it hard for people to actually integrate it into their lives. And also, don't have time right now to be on a podcast or meet up with anyone, assuming that's what you were asking above. I was uh, sending her one of my messages to do an interview, because uh, Kelly does her own podcast. Um, should we give her name? Sometimes I don't know well, if I want to... Just say the name of the podcast. Well, if I'm going to say the name of the podcast, her name's attached to that. So this is Kelly Moody doing Ground Shots podcast, and... Uh, I can't imagine how thrilled she's going to be to be uh, have her note read on an episode called My Dixie Wrecked. But there you have it. <laughs> um, and she's from South Hill, Virginia, which is why I picked this one. I wanted to uh, read a Southerner. You did. Very, very nicely. I would say, yeah, all the indications um, about Phoenicia Madrano, uh, the stories that I read about her, um, I can totally see how Finn, Phoenicia, would be manipulative, would um, tell people different stories depending on maybe what she might have gathered from them, just like sizing them up and, you know, first five seconds, um, spinning, you know, the, the Christian things so that she could, you know, get out of certain trouble or like get certain help from people. And uh, even though it's easy for me to say this because I wasn't manipulated and I didn't know Venezia Medrano, I would just say I'm okay with all of that. I think there's plenty of people in this world that are, you know, hurt, 
Um, I'm not saying that manipulation is a good thing. I'm just saying uh, telling people different stories or different versions of stories. Um, I think that's that's something from a time gone by, and I don't think it's necessarily an evil thing so long as you understand what that person is doing, where they're coming from. Yeah, and thank you for adding that uh, that extra information. As we said in the episode, um, we never met Phoenicia in person, so we're welcoming anybody that wants to kind of fill in some of the gaps, which we know, of course, are there. Um, are always there, any topic we tackle. There's always more to be said or a different perspective on it that's going to add a broader truth. Um, so, yeah, I guess to wind up this episode, I'm just going to once again ask, uh, quit wrecking my Dixie. Um, <laughs> you know, if you didn't grow up here, if uh, you never been to a pig picking where the meat's cooked by a guy with a mullet and a lot of tattoos, um, you know, if you've never... I don't know, if you've never come home to the south and, and smelled that, that sunlight on the pine trees while the mockingbirds are singing and just felt like, damn, it's good to be home, just consider that you might not know as much as you think about the south and be a little more careful before you start tipping over statues and choosing what symbols you think are racist. You know, talking about stipping, tipping over, stipping over statues, mm-hmm. stipping over tattoos. Um, you know, we had this big Silent Sam thing here where... Uh, a statue of a Confederate soldier got tipped over, a young man the, the statue was depicting, who probably voted Democrat because Democrats were the, uh, you know, the big political party of the South. And the this, this statue was made by a Canadian, I believe, who uh, was not pro-slavery. So this, this symbol gets tipped over while the university behind it gets completely ignored that was, in fact, built in part by slaves, that was funded by yeah. slave owners, yeah. by the rich and powerful that uh, had the money to own the slaves. And, and the that, students are going there. And that, are, that founded these schools to teach the kind of education they want taught about a world where you can become rich and become like them and keep their power structure intact. You tell me which symbol is more racist. So that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Be a little more careful when you step into a culture and you decide what the hate symbols are and aren't. Maybe you don't understand as much as you think you do. So, uh, yeah. To the south. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it because we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.